How do we create a culture of safety in the workplace where individuals living with mental health challenges or substance use disorders can come forward without fear of retribution or stigmatization? Let's talk all about it with expert speaker and trainer Kim LaMontagne right here on episode 351 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is always all about you, your personal and professional development, your career, and the healthcare system writ large. And I'm here to share education, ideas, frequent diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, entrepreneurship, medicine, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride, and I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being a part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. And I have a very special request that I've been putting out there for a while. And this is for listeners who really value the show and would like to contribute just a little bit every month on Patreon to help me continue to produce this show. I'm asking 100 regular listeners to pledge $2 a month for a year. Just $2 a month. That's less than buying me a cup of coffee every month. And I won't put any extra caffeine or sugar in the show. Just a lot of audio awesomeness for you. So you can sign up just like Edward from the Bay Area and Marie from Tennessee and Jocelyn from New York at patreon.com forward slash nurse Keith. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash nurse Keith. And you can refer yourself or others to Nurse Keith Coaching, which is your destination for all things related to your career and holistic career coaching. If you send someone to me and they become a paying client, you get an hour of coaching in return as my gift. And if you want to have a free consult, email me at keith at nursekeith.com. And if you mention Kim LaMontagne, you can get 15% off your first coaching package. The show notes will be at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 351. And Kim LaMontagne, it's so nice to have you here. You and I met during the nurse's Bond conference when you did a really mind-blowing presentation. And I just knew I wanted to be your friend and I knew I wanted to have you on the podcast. And you are a stellar human being doing really great work in the world. And the first question I have for you is that you have a story that tells us a lot about what it means to create a mentally healthy workplace, which is really what you're after in your work. So what do you want to tell us first about your story and how you got to where you are today? Sure. Well, thank you so much, Keith. And it is a pleasure to be on this podcast with you. And I knew that I wanted to become your friend too. So Mm -hmm. I'm glad that we have that in common. I'm glad that we're here today. As you had mentioned, yes, I have a story. And my story is that I was a top performing corporate executive for many, many years. And I hid in complete silence in the workplace the fact that I was living with major depression, anxiety, alcohol misuse, and persistent suicidal thoughts. Now, I lived like this in the workplace for my entire corporate career because I was too afraid to speak openly and say that I needed help. More importantly, I stigmatized myself or more specifically, I stigmatized myself because I was just myself too afraid to say back then I called myself an alcoholic. Now I call myself a person with an alcohol misuse problem. Mm -hmm. I live with alcohol misuse. 
But for so many years, I was afraid that as a top performer on a national accounts team, if I stepped forward and said, I live with mental health challenges and I lived, I live with alcohol misuse, I thought I'd lose my seat at the corporate table. And I thought that I would be judged and shamed. And because of that, I stayed silent. And what I learned from that is that silence is toxic because I almost lost my own life to a suicide attempt in 2013. And what I've learned is that we must, it is critical. It's no longer a nice to have. It is a critical ingredient of a mentally healthy workplace culture is that we need to create workplaces that have a safe workplace culture. And a safe workplace culture is one where everyone feels safe speaking openly about mental health or substance misuse without any fear of judgment, retribution, or job loss. Now, I was doing this work. Um, I stepped into speaking, teaching, and training a few years back once I started sharing my story. And I was working full-time in a director's position and doing my speaking, teaching, and training on mental health in the workplace on the, si- on the side. April 1 of 2020, I stepped away from my six-figure corporate salary left every single penny on the table, every benefit, every penny. I left it behind and I stepped fully into speaking, teaching, and training, created Kim LaMontagne LLC, and wrote the curriculum for the four pillars of creating and sustaining a mentally healthy workplace culture, which is a leadership training that basically teaches leaders how to normalize that conversation about mental health create a safe workplace culture where everyone feels safe speaking openly. And it also teaches leaders how to identify, not counsel, but identify an employee who's in distress, open the dialogue without any fear, because many leaders are afraid to start that dialogue about mental health. But it's about teaching them to open that dialogue and crosswalk those employees to the much needed services that they need. In a nutshell, Mm -hmm. that's kind of how I got here. Wow, it's a powerful story. This is the second time I'm hearing, you know, a different version of it. Um, you know, you told it during the Nurses Bond conference and it was amazing. And um first, you you're very very courageous and you said that you were silent for a very very long time and I bet there's might be someone listening right now who's silent and the stigmatization of mental illness and struggles with mental health and substance use disorders. And like you said, alcohol use disorders, you know, we have a culture in the United States where alcohol use is pretty normalized. Like I've noticed here in Santa Fe, like every time I turn around, there's another brewery open, there's another distillery open. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's cool. And it's just alcohol so central to the culture. And you're coming forward as a leader saying that, hey, I had this problem and this is what I did to overcome it. And now you want to teach others that creating that culture is not easy. I mean, that's not an easy thing to do because we're there's the microcosm of a corporate culture, but then we have the wider, let's say, American culture or whatever country you're in. So what do you see when you are approached by or speak with leaders in healthcare or elsewhere 
What do they tell you when you're telling them, look, you need to create a culture of safety? What, what do they say? What, how do they respond to that admonition from you to do that? So the majority, well, many, many leaders have come forward to me and, and said, I need to change my culture, but I don't know how to do that. Right. And when I really talk about, you know, and I share my lived experience and I share the fact that, I mean, I've shared my story countless times. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that I tell leaders is that leaders suffer too. Mm-hmm. And leaders have the ability to transform the workplace culture. And when I knew that I needed to step fully into this work was when I was at a conference in 2018 in Houston. And I was um, one of the first presenters of the day. And there were 150 senior vice presidents in the room that day of HR, nursing, talent development. And I got up and I shared my story. And one of the, the, the stories that I shared and I shared this on the Nurses Bond Conference, is um, the year that I won Director's Choice Award. And that award was meant for the person who was the trailblazer, the leader, the mentor, and the coach. I was happy to win that award at a professional development sales summit at my organization. I earned that award. And then later on that evening, we all went out to celebrate, all my coworkers. And that night, I forgot, or actually... I didn't forget. Mm-hmm. I was too intoxicated by the time I got back to my hotel room after partying with my coworkers that I never told my husband at the time that I was safe and sound in my hotel room. Because of that, he ended up going on my company's website and found um, names and emails of my director and of my coworkers and reached out to them to find out what was going on with Kim because the next day, I woke up to over 30 text messages from my boss, from my coworkers, from my husband, phone calls. I woke up, first of all, I didn't know where I was when I woke up because I was so intoxicated the night before that I blacked out and Mm. I don't remember getting back to my hotel room. Mm. And um, I woke up the next day and I was able to make it to the sales training on time, but I had so much shame because everybody else went out and celebrated with me. But in my book, I was the only one who couldn't handle my alcohol. I felt guilty. Um, And then that very next morning, I found out there was a fire alarm in the hotel the night prior. And I slept through it because I was passed out when the entire hotel evacuated. So when I share that story of, you know, the, um, the Director's Choice Award recipient going out and really losing control, getting intoxicating and creating so much chaos within her own personal life and professional life. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a number of senior, senior leaders who stepped forward and said, wow, a lot of the scenarios that you talk about, maybe having a few too, too many drinks and the depression and the anxiety, I can totally relate to all of those things. So that's when I knew that I really needed to step fully into this speaking, teaching and, and, and training And what I hear leaders say most often is that they are afraid. They are afraid to open up that dialogue and to shift the culture. They recognize that it must happen. And my response to them when they say it's difficult is it's difficult, but it's necessary. Are they afraid just because it's hard? They're afraid because it is a stigmatized and it is a taboo conversation still. Mm. It is not taboo. It's like it was 
10, 20, 30 years ago, but people, leaders are still afraid. Not Mm -hmm. every leader, but leaders are still afraid to approach someone who they think might be showing signs and symptoms that there's a problem and approach that person and actually have an open dialogue because leaders are saying that they're not sure exactly how to support their employees. So they're welcoming the opportunity to be able to understand how to stand up peer support groups, how to change the dialogue in the workplace, because the the words that we're using in the workplace and in general is what's really allowing stigma to thrive and stay alive in the workplace. Mm. So they're welcoming that opportunity, recognizing that shifting to a culture of safety is difficult, but also shifting to to a culture of safety where everyone feels safe speaking openly is Mm -hmm. necessary. And do you talk to leaders in healthcare? Mm-hmm. And is it kind of the same, like whether it's healthcare, corporate America, the, the I don't know, the manufacturing sector? Is it yeah. pretty much all the same? Like, do you hear the same things no matter who you're talking to? Is, is there just commonality between all of these different areas? I do. I hear it yeah. from all industries. So another industry that's suffering greatly right now is mm-hmm. the legal industry. Really? Tell me the more American, about that. Yeah, the American Bar Association just recently, within the past year, uh, stood up a uh, a pledge. It's called the ABA Wellbeing Pledge, and it is to really um, allow um, the topic of mental health, substance misuse, um, really come to the forefront and to recognize the fact that lawyers tend to be a dominant, a male-dominated profession. True, and many men have less of a tendency to speak openly about mental health, especially Mm -hmm. those who are in roles where, um, you know, attorneys have to, um, you know, really um, stand up, make their case. And it's just not normal in their world to be able to say, I'm not okay. And I need help. The other thing that is very normal in the attorney or in the legal world is alcohol. Um, It's something that is just acceptable. And um, so the ABA has actually put this pledge together and um, law firms across the country are signing on for this, for this ABA well-being pledge. And it is basically to help lawyer mental health and well-being because there is no industry out there, Keith, that is not affected. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working in uh, public service. I'm working with emergency management, state troopers, uh, fire, EMS, healthcare, early childhood. Yeah, Uh, You know, I mean, it is everywhere and it's not only within the workplace, but, um, you know, when I train leaders in the workplace to be able to change the dialogue about mental health and well-being, it is also allowing them to change their dialogue about how they talk about mental health and well-being in their personal lives as well. Right. What about, what about the pandemic? Um, You know, we're recording this right near the end of 2021. It's early December, um, mid-December actually. And we've been going at this for, I don't know, 20 months now or so, Mm -hmm. more or less, going on two years. So do you think the issues are just the same and maybe exacerbated by the stresses or the pandemic? Or have there been any sea changes based on COVID-19 that you're, you kind of have your finger on the pulse of? 
So that's a great question. And I would say that the underlying, uh, underlining, well, the silver lining of COVID yes. okay. is that it has become more acceptable to speak about mental health and well-being because people who may not have experienced a mental health challenge prior to COVID are now experiencing a challenge. Hmm experiencing the isolation they are experiencing depression anxiety that's creeping in on them because maybe their future is uncertain the entire world is uncertain right now it's an existential crisis that is uh-huh. is ongoing right now it's not like a one time crisis it's it's this evolving issue right it absolutely is an evolving issue and what it has done it is allowed individuals who may not have been experiencing any type of a mental health challenge who are now experiencing that challenge to really understand that we are not alone, Mm -hmm. that we are all experiencing challenges and what it is, what it's allowed. It's allowed the conversation about mental health, well-being and substance misuse to rise to the top. I am noticing more and more McKinsey reports and Forbes and all sorts of news reports that Mental health and well-being in the workplace is becoming a high priority within organizations. It should have been a high priority before, but it was something that maybe we just kind of overlooked. It was someone else's problem. It's not someone else's problem now. It is everyone's problem. And that's well said. And, you know, yes, it's, it's now kind of like front and center. We're talking about it a lot more. So that's the silver lining of the pandemic. And Pledges are great. Like signing on a a well-being pledge is really awesome. But we also need, like you said at the very top of the show, working with these leaders so that they're on board and they know they have to create a culture. Culture is created from the top down and the bottom up, right? Um, But leaders can really demonstrate what the cultural change needs to be. And they may get lots of pushback from different areas, but they need to be able to just follow through on on cultural change. So I guess my question is, if that's what we need, and we need more than people signing pledges, we need actual cultural shifts. What does it take for an organization to really start to focus on wellness for its employees? Like, let's take a hospital system. Mm -hmm. What does it take other than having an EAP program, you know, employee assistance program, and maybe, I don't know, giving extra time off or something. There's, there's a lot more that has to happen. Mm -hmm. So what does that look like if we're really going to make it really work? So first and foremost, it needs to be mental health and well-being needs to be recognized as a top priority And there needs to be communication and messaging from the top, recognizing that. So for example, the CEO of Cisco Systems about a month and a half, maybe two months ago, Mm -hmm. he wrote an email to all 75,000 of his employees, basically stating, it's okay to not be okay. We are in a crisis right now. And I understand, I may not fully understand from that personal perspective, but you have me as your leader, as your fearless leader and CEO Mm-hmm. Here to say that it is okay to not be okay. We are standing up extra services, uh, beefing up the EAP services, creating all sorts of programs. Mm-hmm. So first off, that message came from the top. Okay. So that message needs to go out and it needs to be loud and clear, but it cannot be said once. 
It has to be embedded in all company communications, every email, every newsletter, every Mm -hmm. safety meeting. Mm -hmm. Uh, It needs to be embedded in the culture, in the fabric of that organization that we are a mentally healthy and mentally friendly workplace culture. Um, Standing up a, a mental health peer support group or a substance use peer support group I cannot tell you how many people have said, after hearing your story, Kim, I felt so safe coming up to you and speaking to you. And I get that all the time. People feel safe speaking to me because they know I will not judge them. They know that I have that lived experience. So they come forward and they speak to me, not in a way that I'm a counselor, but I can say, I can acknowledge what's going on with them and say, you know what? I had those same same issues when I was going through my recovery. This is what helped for me or just really help assure that employee that everything's going to be okay. So standing up a peer support network. You mentioned an employee assistance program. Great. 75% of medium to large organizations offer an EAP, but the national usage rate, Keith, yeah. is 3 to 5%. Wait, three, wait, wait. 3 to 5% of EAP usage? Three to 5%. Wow. 75% of medium to large companies offer it. The usage rate on a national average, three to 5%. -hmm. I had a company I was speaking with two weeks ago. They were thrilled that they had a 12% usage rate. That's phenomenal, but it should be higher than that. And what are the reasons? I was just on a call with a visiting nurse association. And we were talking about the EAP and I asked her, do you know if you have one? She said, I don't know. That's a problem. Yeah, because if you don't know it's there, you can't use it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not to say things have been done wrong in the past. It's just, we need to do things a little bit differently. When we have an EAP as leaders, as organizational leaders, we're investing in that EAP. We cannot just invest and check it off the list and just say, okay, we're done. And have it be buried in an employee handbook. Bring it to the surface. Talk about it. Embed it in your communications. Remind people that it's available. Um, bring people at a staff meeting, at um, a town hall, at any type of a meeting. Pick up the phone. Put it on speakerphone and call the EAP to show employees that it's not scary on the other end of that phone. That it's there for you to use. There's so much stigma and fear of the unknown when it comes to using an EAP. Um, now, Cummins Motors, that's another organization. I'm not currently working with them, but I was part of a, um, a conference with them. And they actually have an employee assistance program. It has worked quite well because they actually work directly with the employee assistance program. They come in on a regular basis. But what they've done is they have increased when it came time to renegotiate with their EAP program, they went from eight visits a year up to 16 visits per year for, per employee Great. because they recognize that that is something that needs to um, be in place and to, to be supported. The other major contributing factor, Keith, and I talked about this in my presentation, is we need to train leaders to shift the culture in terms of language. Language matters. And I'll mm-hmm. go through a quick exercise with you. Um, so when we're talking about someone in the workplace, um, one in five individuals, according to the national Alliance on mental illness will live with a mental health condition. 
That could be 20. If you're in a, a, a room full of 25 um, leaders in a boardroom, five of them could potentially be living with a mental health condition. Five of them could desperately want to say something, but they're too embarrassed about it because the other 20, so according to them, are perfectly fine. But how do you know what's behind that mask? Absolutely. So how do we really encourage people to talk? Well, we stop using the words junkie, um, psycho, nuts, alcoholic, crazy, off the Mm -hmm. rocker. Histrionic. Yeah, we don't use those words. Yeah. We do not use those words. And in a healthcare setting, we don't use frequent flyer anymore. Mm-hmm. We use person living with a mental health condition. We use person who is in recovery. We use the person first language because when we have conversations with people and we are treated as a person and not as a stigmatizing illness that we are associated with, we have more open, safe dialogue. Mm-hmm. So there's a series of things that people, that organizations can do, but it really boils down to change has to start at the top. Change has to be communicated on the regular. It's not just, we made this change, we talked about it, and that's it. It needs to be regular communication, Um, changing the words, uh, bringing the employee assistance program forward, creating those mental health peer support groups, creating a mental health task force. Um, so there's lots of things that organizations can do, but it really does start at the top. It really does. And Kim, when we come back from the break, I want to talk about the four pillars that we mentioned earlier, and I want to talk about your work. And I also just want to talk a little bit about nurses and healthcare providers and how the pandemic has affected them and the ways in which we might be able to change the culture within healthcare to address the issues faced by people who work in healthcare. So does that sound like a good plan? Sounds like a great plan, Keith. Great. So just hang out here with us. This is episode 351 of the Nurse Keith Show, and we will be right back with the second half with Kim LaMontagne. So now we're going to take a pause for the cause for just a moment. Please consider becoming a patron of The Nurse Keith Show, just like other awesome listeners who value the show so much that they want to give just a little bit each month to support the work we're doing here. When you pledge, you not only get the satisfaction of helping produce and support The Nurse Keith Show, you also get some pretty cool premiums and gifts from yours truly. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith to read all about it. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Nurse Keith. And if you know someone who could benefit from career coaching with me, please consider referring them. And if they become a paying client, you'll receive credit for an hour of coaching with me. And there's no expiration date on that credit. So you can keep it in your back pocket until you need it most. And remember that you can refer as many people as you like and continue to earn those coaching credits. What an incredible deal. And please head over to nursekeith.com and sign up for my newsletter, which comes out regularly and brings you supportive messages, updates from my blog and my podcast, resources, and all sorts of other stuff. Remember, nursekeith.com, sign up for that newsletter, and you'll also get a free download from me as my gift to you. Anyway, 
Those are my sincere asks today. So now let's dig back into today's topic without further ado. So welcome back to the second half of the episode. Remember the show notes where you can learn all about Kim LaMontagne and her work in corporate leadership and culture change will be at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 351. And we're here again with friend of the pod and my friend, Kim LaMontagne. And Kim, prior to the break, we were talking about, oh my gosh, changing language, changing culture. We talked about your story, the stigmatization of mental health disorders and um, substance use disorders, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, there's so much to talk about in terms of leadership and how we shift the cultures. And the first question I want to ask you is, you know, you're, you're a speaker, you're a, you're a state trainer with the National Alliance on Mental Illness. You're a member of the Dartmouth-Hitchcock campaign to combat behavioral health stigma and discrimination. You've, you've been around and with 12 years sober, congratulations. Thank you. And being out there in the world, telling your story, I just want to ask you on a personal level, and this is just between us, there's not thousands of people listening, okay? Um, <laughs> what What's it like to stand up and tell your story? Like what, what do you feel when you're just divulging your own personal struggles? Honestly, Keith, it's the most amazing feeling in the world. Tell me because, more about that. Because when I step out on a stage, yeah, specifically in person, I mean, in Zoom too, yeah. but when I step out on stage, I can scan that audience. And while I am sharing my story, I can look into the eyes of the people who I, I can feel mm-hmm. they are, that, that are there for a reason. Yeah, um, It's the most amazing feeling because not everyone has the ability to be vulnerable mm-hmm. and speak their truth. Not everyone will get up and talk about the director's choice award recipient getting so intoxicating and sleeping through a fire alarm. Um, not everyone would talk about what led me to get sober on July 16th, 2009. And I'll, my last final straw key was on July 4th. 2009, we had a block party in my neighborhood at my house. Of course, we always had the parties at my house. Mm -hmm. I woke up on July 5th wearing the same clothes that I had on the night prior, not remembering a thing that happened. And I looked at my husband at the time and I said, first of all, what happened last night? And second of all, why are there black marks all over my white jeans that I passed out in last night? I'll never forget what he said. He looked at me and he said, Kim, you were so drunk last night that you tripped and came within inches of falling into the fire pit in the driveway. Talk about shame. Mm-hmm. But I had to laugh it off. I couldn't tell. I couldn't let, up, let on to my husband. That, oh, my God, I need help. So that was on July 5th, and it took me to July 16th, 2009 to finally make the call that changed my life. Mm -hmm. And at 4.45 in the afternoon, I called my doctor's office and got in, and I saw the most kind, compassionate nurse practitioner 30 Mm -hmm. minutes after I made that phone call that I needed help. And that man is the reason why I got sober, because he saw me as a person first. He said, 
I'm going to help you and we are going to do this together. Mm. And he allowed me to just fall apart in that office. And he allowed me to see that I was a person first. And because of that, it is the most amazing feeling to be able to get up and share my story and know that one, two, five, 10, 20 people could potentially hear one piece of my story and make a decision that could potentially change their life. I am approached, hugged, and Mm -hmm. talked to by professionals of all shapes, sizes, ages, genders, all industries. I can't tell you how many people who have come forward and said, Kim, I'm sober now and you are my inspiration. It's amazing. And I'm sure that you felt that feeling before when you've done some presentations of yours, but to know that the content that you are bravely and boldly and courageously sharing could be a game changer. Any fear that could be in my bones before I step out on a stage just goes away because Mm -hmm. I know it's like, and everything that comes out of my mouth when I'm on stage, it's like, it's just coming through. It's like, it's just, I don't know. It's a message that just needs to come out of my mouth. Yeah. And to the right person who's sitting in that audience. Yeah, that's beautiful. And if you if you affect that one person, you know, you're actually not affecting that one person because you're affecting their family, their friends, their children, the generations that come after them, perhaps, because if they get sober, then their children have a different kind of parent. And then they those children have a different experience growing up. And then they learn those lessons from that parent and then pass it on when they have children. And then it affects their workplace. I mean, the ripple effects are pretty enormous when one person changes and gets sober or whatever seeks help or whatever it is they happen to, to do. You know, we don't even know the, the, the extent and breadth and depth of what change will result from that person, the light bulb going off for that person sitting there listening to you in that moment. So bravo yep. for you for, for being that catalyst and empowering people and feeling so empowered yourself that you can step out on that stage and just like bear your soul to an audience. It's a really beautiful, courageous thing. Thank you. And not something that I ever thought I would do as I was. <laughs> yeah. That, you probably you know? haven't thought, hadn't thought of that before. No, I'm going to go out on stage and tell my story to thousands of people. Yeah. I know. I know. Yeah. Exactly. And, but you know what I think is really important is that, um, I represent the leaders, mm-hmm. I represent the leaders who, and I wasn't at the top, but I was a, a top performer, but there are lots of people that were higher up than me, but I was yeah. looked upon as a leader and a trailblazer. And it's almost like um, peer support, sharing our stories gives us all permission to say that we're not okay. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so for, for me, because I was recognized as being a high performer, um, I'll never forget when I shared my story with my coworkers at a business development sales summit, my vice president asked me, can you share your story with your coworkers and do a training on mental health and well-being?" And I said, sure. 35 of my coworkers, business development sales, um, uh, coworkers, there were two VPs in the room. HR was in the room. Marketing was in the room. And I got up. 45 minutes and I shared my story and taught my coworkers on mental health and well-being. They didn't expect my presentation. They didn't know what was going to come out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. However, what I found is that during my presentation, there was 
zero conversation. No one moved. No one got up for coffee because they were hearing about the Kim LaMontagne that they had never heard about before. Mm -hmm. Right. They only knew the Kim LaMontagne, the high performer. I gave them the real me. And after I shared my story, eight of my own coworkers, eight, came forward and said, I'm not okay. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to help. That's that's incredible. And, you know, extrapolate that out to, you know, the healthcare realm. Okay. So have you ever seen the show Nurse Jackie? No, I haven't. Yeah. Well, it's all about a, a nurse with substance use disorder. And okay. it's it's a comedy, but it's also a tragedy. And um, you know, this is not a small, a small issue. I have a friend named Tiffany Swedeen. She's been on the show several times and she tells her story of needing to go into probation, et cetera, and um having you know, gone down some not so great paths as a nurse and having to come back. And she coaches nurses who are in recovery. Oh, that's great. Yeah. You need to meet her. And and she walks them through that process and empowers them and supports them. And there's an organization called She Recovers that she does presentations for that works with women in recovery from anything. They could be in recovery from being a woman in the 21st century. It doesn't really matter, um, whatever they're in recovery from. But in, in the healthcare realm specifically, I feel like there's a lot of this feeling that you could you could be penalized at any time. And I'll give an example, a timely example. I work for a temp agency here in New Mexico and I do COVID vaccine clinics and COVID testing with the DOH, things like that. So as a temp, I'm not a full employee, but still I'm I'm working with the DOH. So the temp agency sent me a paper just the other day actually to go get a drug test. I have to get a drug screen, right? So I'm like, okay, I'll go get a drug screen and I have nothing to hide because I haven't taken anything and, and it'll be completely clean. But the fact is that if I if it didn't come clean, say there was some THC or say there was um, cocaine or narcotic or meth or something, what would happen if that was positive? I would likely be fired and told I can't work with patients anymore, Right. So that's one thing. So it it immediately evokes this sense of fear and mistrust, right? So, and I have a lot of issues with, you know, even nurses who have a medical marijuana card in a state where medical marijuana is legal can't use medical marijuana because they'll get fired from their job if they have a, a drug screen with THC that shows up in it. So what's, you can't even have a healthcare provider with PTSD using marijuana for their post-traumatic stress because they'll lose their job because they're trying to heal themselves. But that's a whole nother conversation. Oh, yes. <laughs> so this penalization, rather than saying, hey, we noticed your urine is clean. Can we have a conversation about this? And then here's another issue. And I just it's just on my mind. So I'm just bringing it forward. I could be a raging alcoholic, right? I could drink all weekend and I could blackout all weekend. But if I can get myself up, clean myself up, get to work on Monday, for instance, if I work during the work week, nothing's going to happen. No one tests me for alcohol use, right? So I could 
smoke a little marijuana for, for anxiety and lose my job, right? On a Saturday night or something, I could smoke a little or something if I chose to do that. And I could drink all weekend, but nothing will ever happen. So there's this disparity. And what do you think of this culture? And in healthcare, it's a big thing, getting drug tested. So what are we telling people when we do drug testing and the drug test comes back positive and they lose their job? What are we communicating here? And sorry, that was a long tangent, but I thought it was an important issue to bring up. It is an important issue to bring up, and I appreciate you bringing that up. And those drug screens can go across all industries. But I will tell you that I remember being at a conference in Maine, and it was for the um, Maine Organization of Nurse Leaders. It was Mm. several years ago. And I remember two nurses who got up and shared their story that um, they were actually fired for... um, um, substance misuse. And what happened was their leadership team actually took another look at the situation and decided to say, wait a minute, there's a problem here. Mm -hmm. This is a person and here's a problem. And so they actually brought these two nurses in and put them through a rehabilitation program and actually got them healthy brought them back into the organization, re-employed them. And now those two nurses actually speak all over and share their story. And they are a model for, if you had fired these two, look what you, what you would have lost versus just saying, okay, like what you had just said, I noticed that your urine is not clean. Mm-hmm. Can we have a conversation about that? Tell me more. Exactly. And, you know, it's about, it's not about, And actually, words matter. If you say your urine's dirty, that's you're stigmatizing someone. Mm -hmm. It's dirty. Mm -hmm. So how about saying your urine is not clean? That's what I'm I'm identifying. And instead of just pointing the finger right away and just saying you're fired, Mm -hmm. you want to tell me about that? Can you tell me a little bit more about what's going on? Why this Mm -hmm. would not be clean? Yeah. Um, But you're right in terms of alcohol. I mean, for me, I never did any drugs. Uh, For me, I never drank during the day, but you betcha, six, seven, eight, nine glasses of wine a night, followed Mm -hmm. by blackouts and hangovers. Yeah. But I got up the next day and I did it and I was never tested for alcohol. So there has to, you know, at some point, and this is not my specialty, but at some point, is there going to be, um, you know, changes in terms of how we look at alcohol as a drug versus marijuana as a drug, because alcohol can be just as lethal, just as dangerous. Um, But most importantly, if we're screening for these things, Mm -hmm. we as leaders need to make a commitment that it's, if you fail your drug test or if it does not, if it does not come out, okay, that there's a conversation. Right. And we're not just going to fire you and report you to the, the the, uh, board of nursing, because once that board of nursing report happens, it can almost never be wiped clean. And I work with nurses all the time who under certain circumstances, often not something they've done really done wrong. All of a sudden they have a mark on their license and getting back in the game is really hard. So the, the, the employer doesn't need to go right to the BON. They can have these conversations. So 
you know, we could spend a whole hour talking about this particular issue and maybe we should sometime. But when you work in the corporate world, whether it's healthcare or manufacturing or whatever, these are these are the issues. And you're trying to cajole <laughs> and convince leaders that they need to help create and sustain mentally healthy workplace cultures. And you have your your four pillars of creating and sustaining a mentally healthy workplace culture training. Yeah. And as we slowly start to wrap up, and I really don't want to, because we're going to have to have you back. Absolutely. Um, yeah. What are the four pillars? Can you tell us what they are and why they're important? Sure. So the first pillar is number one, we have to recognize that mental health and well-being is a top priority. We need to recognize, build that business case okay. that addressing mental health and well-being in the workplace is necessary. It's critical. Okay. Second pillar is to share that lived experience to bring the human connection to mental health and well-being. Uh, the third is to to change the way we uh, the way we look at mental health and well-being in the workplace to change the language that we're currently using in the workplace. And then the fourth pillar is to create a culture of safety. And there's many different areas of how to create that culture of safety, but it's about creating that culture. And that's done through leadership training, communications, um, embedding the, the commitment into your, into your, all of your communications, but it's about um, creating that culture where everyone feels safe speaking openly. So again, it's recognized, the need to address mental health, share the lived experience, uh, change the the stigma and discrimination around mental health and well-being in the workplace, mm-hmm. and create a culture of safety where everyone feels safe. Hmm. So a lot of this is about perception, right? We oh, have yeah. to change the perception because if we don't change that, we can't really do anything else, can we? We can't. We absolutely mm-hmm. can't. And you know, I'm going to share something with you, Keith. For it. I came across a, a post on Facebook the other day in a camping group, like an RV camping group. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a man and a woman and they were wearing a, a, the same t-shirt and they were proud of this t-shirt. Now I do not blame these two, two people because you don't know what you don't know. Right. Well, someone tells you, but on their shirts, it said, we are not alcoholics. They go to meetings. We are drunks. We go camping. Hmm. Wow. That's a double stigmatizing negative right there. Wow. We are not alcoholics. They go to meetings. We are drunks. We go camping. Wow. That's awful. I have to think about that for a while. It's awful. Yeah. You know, and I really, I want to write to that, to that t-shirt company. Mm-hmm. And let them know the power of those words that mm-hmm. they are putting on the, that T-shirt. See, that's this is a whole nother conversation. But I know. Like, <laughs> like I mentioned a little while ago, maybe during the first half, about here in Santa Fe, I noticed like every time I turn around, there's a new brewery, there's a new distillery, and I'm like, why not a new like vegan restaurant or something? You know, <laughs> why well, do we need so many places where alcohol is consumed? And I, I know why, and I I know that there's a lot of symptoms that lead us to having all these venues where alcohol can be consumed. Um, and I don't drink. Um, so it's like, okay, um, what are the messages being 
pushed out there into the world? And what are the messages being heard by the nurse who has to go for a drug screen and she's shaking in her boots because she knows she, she had an edible over the weekend because she was really stressed out and she knows she's going to be positive for THC and she's likely to lose her job. And it might even be reported to the board of nursing and her whole world could be turned upside down because her, you know, her sister-in-law died and she's really stressed out and grieving and she needed to eat an edible so she could go to sleep. Right. Uh So, and if no one says to her, Hey, we noticed there's some THC in your drug screen and um, you know what our policy is, but what's going on? Like, You've never had a drug screen with THC in it before. So what what happened? And she could say, well, my sister-in-law just died after a long struggle with cancer and I can't sleep and I have post-traumatic stress and I decided I needed to take some indica so I could sleep at night. So I took an edible, right? So, but those conversations, if they don't happen, and again, it's about perception. If she perceives that she's only going to be vilified, she's not going to come forward and you were you didn't come forward for many years right correct i mean i got sober in 2009 but it wasn't yeah. until 2016 that i started speaking openly about it mm-hmm. between 2009 and 2016 i was embarrassed because i was I still thought of myself as an alcoholic and all of those bad things now i, I am proud to be a person who lives with substance or alcohol misuse. I am proud to be someone who lives successfully with suicidal thoughts. I no, I no longer hide that. I'm proud because it's the, the most difficult thing I've ever had to get through. And um, I know the feeling of going through your entire friends and family list and finding a legitimate reason why they would all be better off without you or me. Right. And that's what a painful exercise and and how many people have gone through that. And, you know, I had an episode, it was last year, maybe 2019, actually, there was a doctor who was on my show and he wrote a book, the name of which I can't remember right now off the top of my head about being a physician and a healthcare provider living with mental illness. And he came clean about having a mental illness, which was major depression, I believe. And he and I on that episode were both pretty honest about our own struggles with depression. And I've talked about mine here on the show. I've talked about living with chronic pain because if we talk about it as public figures, we can normalize it. And if we talk about it as private citizens, we also normalize it. And if we talk about it as corporate leaders, we're normalizing it. So your your work is really, really important. And we need to have you back on the show that we need to dig deeper. And I would love to talk more about this, about healthcare specifically and what's happening and what's happened in healthcare and nursing, why we're losing so many nurses and why we, why we punish so many when we could actually be helping them instead, especially in the world we're living in right now where we need them. Don't we? I think, Absolutely. And I think I could, we could talk for hours on so many different things. But one of the things that I will say about nurses right now and anyone in healthcare, yeah, please, is they don't have time right now to process their emotions. No, they don't, do they? 
No. So what's happening, Keith, is they're pushing their emotions further and further and further and further and further down Mm -hmm. because they don't have the capacity to deal with them. There's not enough time. And um, they're being told to go from patient to patient, mortality to mortality, and they're stuffing down these emotions. And um, it's like in a little box. And one day, that box is going to come open. Those emotions are going to come to the top and that's going to be another crisis. That's the PTSD crisis that some of us are feeling it right now. Some of us are not able to because we have not let let our emotions come to the surface. But when we all do, we need to know that our workplace is a place of safety and that we can go to our leader and say, I may be your top nurse. I may be the one who looks like I have everything together. I'm your go-to, but I'm falling apart. Mm -hmm. And it needs to be okay to say that. It does. It does. Right. And they have to create the culture where that can be said. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. And if I am that leader and I want to contact you about the four pillars of creating and sustaining a mentally healthy workplace culture, and I want to take the training, or maybe I want my whole team, my executive and middle management team to take the training, hint, hint. Um, (laughs) What did they do? I know they can go to kimlamontane.net and it's Kim. L-A-M-O-N-T-A-G-N-E dot net. And we'll have that in the show notes. But how do they get in touch with you and actually make it happen? So they can go directly to the website. As you said, there is a a link where they can schedule time with me uh, through Calendly. They can schedule a consult. They can email me, Kim at KimLamontane.net. Hey, I heard you on the Nurse Keith podcast. I would love to have a conversation. So it's about... um, you know, having them reach out, they can reach out via the website. I'm also on LinkedIn. I have a Facebook page. I'm on Twitter. Um, LinkedIn is probably where I have my most communication out of all the platforms. That's really where the folks are that I'm, that I'm working with. Um, We would have a, a Zoom conversation to really try and figure out where you're at and where you need help with. And then it's very simple to implement the training. It's available on site. Kind of, sort of, with COVID mixed in there. I've done a couple of on-site trainings, but primarily most organizations choose the virtual Zoom platform. And I also have the training available in an on-demand platform as well. And then some organizations choose to have their senior leaders do some uh, training in person mm-hmm. and maybe supervisors do the Zoom training and staff have access to the on-demand training. So mm-hmm. it really all depends on what happens but we have to start first with the conversation. So I encourage anyone to reach out via the website, uh, LinkedIn, or just shoot me off a quick email. I'd love to talk. Great. So hopefully someone will hear this and the light bulb will go off and they'll get in touch with you. And I really encourage them to do so. And you can read about it in the show notes at nursekeith.com forward slash episode 351, or just go to kimlamontane.net. And I encourage you to do that and bring Kim to your organization. So Kim Lamontane, thank you so much. You're so amazing. And we're going to have you back in 2022 because there's a lot more to talk about. And I'm going to connect you with Dr. Renee Thompson, who works on bullying in healthcare and incivility, and Tiffany Swedeen, who does work with nurses in recovery. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of great commonalities between the three of you. Yes, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me and bringing this conversation to the forefront. It's critical. And the more we talk about it, the easier it gets. So thank you. Thanks, Kim. 
Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this awesome and inspiring episode of the Nurse Keith Show. Remember, nursekeith.com forward slash episode 351 is where you can learn all about Kim LaMontagne and get in touch with her. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from this episode. And if you need personalized holistic career coaching, remember, email me at keith at nursekeith.com. We can have a complimentary consult. And if you mention Kim LaMontagne, you can get 15% off your first coaching package. And remember, listeners who value the show so much, they'd like to give $2 a month to support the show and the production here at patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith. Would you do me the honor of becoming a patron? The Nurse Keith Show is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. The show is adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting and Mark Cappiespeason is our stalwart social media ringmaster. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico and the amazing, inimitable Kim LaMontagne bidding you adieu from... Rock Hill, South Carolina. All right. Thank you, Kim. Thank you so much. And we will catch everybody on the flip side.